Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by investigative researcher Jenny Silcox and publisher for the New American Magazine, Dennis Barrett. The panel is also lucky to have the mysterious Sid. Tonight's show is based on the worm pill conspiracy. Are the powers that be encouraging the populace to be infected with parasites for some esoteric ulterior motive? Chapter one, the premise. Do parasites zombify their hosts? Like a mouse with toxoplasmosis, which hijacks the mouse's nervous system and disables its fear of cats so that the virus can jump hosts, are parasites a bigger factor in human behavior than previously conceived? This notion came to the fore with a question on a social media website where a poster was hazarding a theory. He was curious as to the establishment's disinclination to have people using ivermectin because it kills parasites. He started to wonder about this when a cousin of his, who was gay, took ivermectin to battle what he perceived to be COVID-19 and suddenly discovered that his attraction to men ceased. The poster drew down upon himself all the opprobrium of committing thought crime when he wondered if homosexuality may be the result of parasites. Incidentally, PubMed had an article that said, in a controlled study, 67.5% of 200 homosexual men, but only 16% of 100 heterosexual men, were found to be infected with intestinal parasites. Its title is Intestinal Parasitic Infections in Homosexual Men, Prevalence, Symptoms, and Factors in Transmission. Without getting off track and making this all about one particular type of behavior, just generally speaking, are many pathologies manifesting today the result of parasites affecting people's cognition? You want to get us started, Jenny? Uh, Well, (laughs) it'll be interesting to explore this topic because um, I myself have had uh, an almost fatal um, parasitic infection. And it is not in the normal sense of the word that no one in Albuquerque at the time, no doctors had the awareness or knowledge to be able to detect what was going on with me. And if you want to know what it's like to be driven crazy by a parasite that's under your skin, um, people have to realize there are different vectors and intestinal parasites are certainly only one very tiny portion of the entire world of parasitic infections. And the thing that I have to say about it is that parasites are adapted to fooling the human immune system because the immune system, if it detected the parasite right away, would seek to eliminate it. So parasites are inherently sneaky and they have a variety of ways of uh, circumventing the human immune system. Dennis, do you have any uh, insights or theories on this uh, controversial concept? Well, I I think it sounds extremely controversial when you state it in certain ways. But if you think about it in the greater context of our understanding of uh, biology in general and the human human interaction with uh, the rest of the biosphere, if you want to put it that way, uh, you know, from, you know, microbes right on up to, you know, larger sized animals and the chemical signaling pathways that occur. Uh, we, I think, as a scientific society have only begun to crack the surface of what the relationships and implications of those 
relationships might be. Um, you know, and, and I guess a, a good, for instance, would be in the recent last, say, 15 years or so, but maybe more especially in the last five and 10 years, there's been a lot of scientific investigation of something called epigenetics, uh, which is the uh, ability of genetic expression within a particular uh, organism to be impacted by uh, influences coming from the environment. And I've had some long and uh, de you know, detailed uh, discussions of epigenetics with a fairly highly trained medical doctor who, you know, I, I won't name, but uh, she's, she's very interested in the subject and she's in a, a current practice in the medical system nearby here where I live. And uh, she's absolutely convinced that, sh that epigenetics is going to be a frontier of uh, future medical investigation and it has an enormous impact uh, on people. So I think with regard to the more specific uh, impact of parasitology and parasites and their interaction with hosts, uh, we barely really have scratched the surface there. And you're seeing that with what you, you brought up, toxo, uh, toxoplasmosis, that particular parasite uh, was just in the news, uh, maybe it was even yesterday or the day before, um, about uh, new research showing its impact on, uh, on human behavior and even the way people look. Uh, it was you know, alleged by this research finding that uh, people who are infected may look more attractive while also somewhat like rats, uh, may have less inhibition to dangerous behaviors. And, you know, is this 100% uh, definitive, this particular study? I, I really highly doubt it. I didn't look at the study itself. I was just reading the summary of it. Uh, but it suggests that we're starting to learn that there's more going on with parasites and host interactions than maybe most people realize. Yeah, well, the, the name of that article is uh, Humans Infected with Mind-Altering Parasite Seen as More Attractive. And it says, uh, quote, Curiously, as a new study published by Pierre J. finds, T. gondi may also change humans' physical appearance. An international team turned up a link between a latent infection and facial attractiveness. The researchers recruited 213 healthy college students at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, all of whom had previously been tested for T. gondi. 35 subjects, 22 men and 13 women, had the parasite, while 178, 86 men and 92 women did not. The researchers then asked the subjects various questions and took pictures of their faces. Next, another 205 participants each viewed a random collection of 20 of these pictures, 10 of toxoplasma-positive subjects and 10 of toxoplasma-negative subjects, rating each pictured participant for facial attractiveness and perceived health on a 10-point scale. Uh, raiders were not told of participants' toxoplasma status. Overall, raiders judged toxoplasma-positive subjects to be significantly more attractive and healthy-looking than toxoplasma-negative subjects. So... What that suggests is that the bacteria, you know, the, or the pathogen uh, is creating the conditions to be able to jump, um, you know, po possibly, you know, and this is this gets back to what you were saying, Dennis, um, you know, 30 percent of you know people's genome comes from, you know, bacteria comes from things outside of themselves. And it kind of reminds me of uh, Richard Dawkins and his uh, selfish gene concept, you know, that animals are merely conveyance systems for genes. Right. And this way of thinking, um, it's. It's it's uh, alien for us to conceptualize, um, you know, that we're not the end all be all of nature, you know, that we may be the wrapper for some fundamental unit of biology, you know, the carrying case, um, mm -hmm. like how the, you know, the, the for instance, we, we mentioned the toxoplasmosis, but there's also um, the stickleback fish. It's affected by a parasite and it would... Um, this is interesting because it would affect the fish around it. Like if one fish was infected, it would, you know, it would it would manipulate the other fish just, you know, subliminally, um, and it would it would kind of steer them in in the path of danger. 
um, you know, and they would all die kind of, you know, like in a, in a lemming like fashion um, as if the, the pathogen was uh, think, think of the human body or think of stickle, you know, fish or, or mice or any any biological creature uh, as hardware. And, you know, parasites have the, the, the capacity, it would seem, to upload software. You know, and to change the, the, the algorithm that, you know, that an animal would have so that a mouse now, you know, sees cats as attractive, you know, and, and gets eaten so that the, the parasite can jump hosts, you know. So I don't know. I, I found that very interesting. Uh, Jenny, what, do, what, what are your uh, takes on my ramblings? Well, it's, I am very familiar with the schistosoma parasite, and it has six different life stages that infect different environments and different species in a string of interacting uh, species in the environment so that it easily transports from uh, waterborne as a waterborne parasite into aquatic snails, which then get eaten by birds, which then poop on the pastures and then give the the, um, animals that are eating the pasture greenery like uh, llamas, pigs, and horses, then pick up the uh, thing, and uh, then it's transmitted to humans in one way or another. These parasites are amazing in that they they also seem to occupy various different human body systems in different stages, so they're very hard to track. And a lot of people think only of an, uh, intestinal parasites when they think of a human getting a parasite. But uh, what I've read, and I can't substantiate this right now, I was just looking for the uh, actual data on this, is that 85% of Americans actually do have some kind of a parasitic infection and are just not aware of it. And so it's a very good question as to how our society would be interacting right now if we weren't so infected with something that is actually capable of affecting human behavior. Let let me uh, play a clip that uh, you, Jenny, brought to my attention, and uh, I'll get Dennis's take on it. Dr. Jane Ruby is back with her latest takes on these COVID-19 bioweapon shots. Today, Dr. Jane says that she has evidence that Pfizer vials contain parasite eggs that are now hatching by the millions. She says that they could be bioengineered, part animal, part technological hybrids, and she joins us now. Dr. Jane, uh, what? Yeah, Stu, on Friday, I I broke on your show that this information was coming in, and I had already seen a great number of the photos and the videos uh, put out by a group of German uh, parasitologists, if you will. These are specialists in identifying uh, parasites in human blood and in human tissues, and they have found uh, in a number of Pfizer vials uh, these, these parasites. The interesting thing is, Stu, they have found the, 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 like a self-assembling. This is why I think it's, it's part, it's a hybrid of something part animal and part technical. Uh, they end up assembling themselves in such a way, or the material does, such that the eggs are, are spewed out. And then those eggs develop rapidly within hours, by the way, into full length uh, parasites. They did not specify, it was, it was interpreted through, from German. Uh, they did not specify what species, what type. They, they didn't really, couldn't really recognize that. But these experts were able to identify by a 40,000 magnification, uh, a GI tract, a tail in the fully formed parasites, and a sex organ section where they are, continu- once they're released or once they're, you know, full-blown developed, they start to, to spew out more and more egg sacs. It's really gross. 
Okay, Jan- Dennis, with uh, with that, I will uh, have you weigh in on the possibility <laughs> that we're purposely being infected with parasites for whatever reason. Well, I've got a couple things to say about that. Um, the first thing I'll say about that is more more of a general approach to doing damage via the vaccines. And uh, that's this is not one based on any particular evidence, but on strategy, if you will. Uh, let's just say for the sake of argument that you want to do broad, wide-scale damage via these, uh, these uh, inoculations. Do you need to include something that would be like what was just described in that clip? Or are you satisfied with what you've done with the spike protein? Because the spike protein in and of itself is without any question, very well supported in the research and certainly well known to the people who uh, engineered the mRNA that produces a spike protein. And, and this is, if you think about it, this is quite clever in a devious way. You're, you're injecting this into humans and making their, the human cell manufacture, manufacture its own toxin in the form of the spike protein. And we know for a fact uh, in the research that the spike protein uh, has a number of potential deleterious pathways in which it can affect people. Uh, the most well-known of which, and I'll only just mention this one because it's significant enough on its on its own, it absolutely positively will cause microclot blood clots uh, that uh, very likely will impact many, many people, uh, are, are already impacting many, many people, up to and including uh, people passing away at young ages from uh, blood clots and other related incidences coming from the spike protein that their bodies are manufacturing care of this shot. So is that sufficient damage enough? If you, you know, for the sake of argument are trying to engineer a damaging inoculation, uh, is that all you need? I think that argument is pretty strong that says, yes, it is all you need. You've, you've, you've come up with a very devious and very clever way of doing that. Uh, you don't need to use something even less easily well characterized, such as a strange parasite egg included in the particular vaccine or inoculation, as the case may be. And in, in the specific case of the uh, German uh, example that was brought up in that clip, I have right in front of me uh, a screenshot of one of the pieces of evidence that they uh, produced, and that is uh, two worms hatched from two eggs, uh, so-called. And when you look at that, you could say, if you haven't ever looked under a microscope before, and particularly in this case, a dark field microscope, which uh, radically enhances the contrast of what you're looking at, you would say, well, my gosh, that, uh, that circuitous fiber-like thing, uh, of course, it must be a worm. And that other little envelope type thing next to it must have been the egg from which it came from. Uh, but having looked through many optical microscopes, uh, I can tell you for sure that there are alternative explanations that are simpler. And the obvious alternative explanation is it looks like a hair fiber or a plant, a plant hair fiber. It looks like debris that got into the slide during slide preparation. Well, you, you said you made one point that was interesting. You said that it was diabolical to get human bodies to be able to manufacture their own poison. And I remember some years ago, I was reading about uh, genetically modified food. And uh, for instance, in nature, when a caterpillar goes to nibble on a plant, the plant to defend itself releases phytoalexins. Uh, it's a chemical that basically it's carcinogenic. And when the caterpillar tastes it, it tastes bitter and it stops eating the plant. And then the plant shuts it off. So what the, the agribusinesses decided to do was to figure out a way to rig an apple, as an example, to keep producing phytoalexins all year round, you know, never to turn off. And they would sell this to farmers, you know, or to grocery stores and say, you know, 
you can use less pesticides because now the, 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 the plant itself or the fruit itself will be producing its own toxin and, you know, and it won't turn off like it does in nature. But here's the problem. When we eat that, that, that apple, that genetically modified apple, um, you know, you're getting carcinogenic, like it looks like an apple, you know, it tastes like an apple. You cut it open and it cuts just like an apple, but it's, it's filled with toxins like a natural apple wouldn't be. And it's not good for you. And uh, the EU has like banned a lot of these, uh, you know, these, these processes. But one of the things in that same book that, that jumped out at me as well, they were talking about genetically modified wheat. And they said that like natural wheat has something like 11 genes, right? And um, the genetically modified versions have 48 genes. And they said, you know, to put that in context, the difference between a human being and a chimp is like one gene. So, you know, so if, if you go from 11 genes to 48 genes, that's not the same species. You're not eating wheat, you know, anymore, even though they call it wheat and it looks like wheat. You're not eating wheat anymore. And, and they were talking about the possibility of people getting sick from the genetically modified wheat because of this process in nature um, whereby, you know, uh, little little strands of DNA would jump into, you know, the, the GMO wheat. Um, and uh, good, goodness gracious, what is the name of the process there? Um, I can't, it'll, it'll occur to me in a, in a second. But basically they were seeing anthrax, um, you know, jump into the, the wheat. So people who think that they have like, you know, celiac disease or they think that they're, you know, uh, like they, they have some problem with wheat, you know, and they can't eat wheat. They can eat real wheat. You know, if you brought, gave them wheat with the 11 genes, they can eat that and process it absolutely fine. But the, the GMO wheat was actually getting, um, you know, the, oh, it was called plasmids. A plasmid in nature basically is a small packet of DNA and it can embed itself into another organism and then put its DNA into that other organism. Um, so, so yeah, these, these little plasmids, they, and they exist in nature. So what you're looking yeah. at is, is the pharmaceutical companies, they're, they're, they first practiced on fruit and vegetables and now they're using these same techniques on human beings where the, where they can produce their own you know toxin so jenny did you want to weigh in well the, the, what you just described is called hgh and basically what it is is a lateral gene transfer and there's a whole area of explanation of ex exploration of using parasites to intentionally laterally transfer genetic material from one uh being into another because parasites are really good at invading a system without exciting the immune response. And therefore, they, they have looked at uh, parasites as a, a possible way, as a vector for bringing in new genetic material and crossing the blood-brain barrier in humans and various other systems to transfer genetic material without exciting the immune system. Because uh, parasites are so good at cloaking. Chapter 2 speculation. One of the things that um, that I was struck by was how the elites are basically acting like a, a cult, right? Like in a cult, they, they, they limit protein uh, intake so that you're more suggestible. And uh, one of the, one of the things that they're doing now is uh, telling the public to stop eating beef because beef is bad for the environment and to eat insects. But the thing with insects is that they're filled with parasites. And, and so I was like looking at this thing. It says uh, one study from 2019 on the NIH's website said, 
The experimental material comprised samples of live insects from 300 household farms and pet stores, including 75 meal, mealworm farms, 75 house crickets, 75 Madagascar hissing cockroach farms, and 75 migrating locust farms. Parasites were detected in 244, 81.33% out of 300 examined in insect farms. And it says, and so I, I was looking at just various articles on, you know, how we should eat, you know, insects going forward. And it says, uh, here's one article. It's on the conversation.com. Eating insects is good for you, good for the planet. Or Medical News Today uh, grubs up how eating s- insects could benefit health. And it's it's just <laughs> it's just a, yeah. a fascinating thing. So, Dennis, did you want to weigh in on that? Well, you know, you can. <laughs> well, I was going to make a joke and say, well, hissing cockroaches taste just like chicken. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, only if roasted, roasted, right? <laughs> um, you know, but take a look at uh, take a look at your normal human diet. These this this diet did not just come out of nowhere. Uh, just like with any other species on the planet, uh, any given species has a specific kind of diet. Uh, some animals are omnivores and can eat. Uh, any combination of uh, vegetables and meat. Uh, some animals are predators and are carnivores and are really on a meat-based diet. Uh, you know, one of the, the key example being a cat. Uh, cats, you know, are ge- generally in the wild eat meat and they eat some of the digestive products of the prey that they prey upon, but they're not going to, as a rule, go out and seek out grasses to graze on, like say uh, a horse or a cow. Uh, which has a specific uh, digestive system to handle those things. Now, what we're trying to do as part of the the Great Reset, or more more broadly, uh, you know, the transhumanist agenda, is to re-engineer the human diet. The human diet comes from the nature of the human species up to this point. That is under attack in an attempt to re-engineer it. And I think you see it now with regard to the oh-so-convenient food shortage that the Biden administration is now openly warning the American people to be on the lookout for. You're going to have food shortages. We're going to have to change our diets. Uh, The World Economic Forum has been very open about this. You're going to have to eat less meat. You're going to have to change your diet, and people are going to have to migrate from the natural diet that we have, have have come down from all the ages of humanity. We're going to have to change that to something else. That is the methodology that is the philosophy of transhumanism. We're going to transform humanity from what it has been to what we wish it could be in the future. And so you have to ask yourself, is that going to be beneficial for most people? Well, of course, the answer is no, because most people aren't going to make the transhumanist jump. This is something that only the elites will get to so-called benefit from. Uh, So meanwhile, the rest of us who don't want to make that transhumanist jump and are opposed to the fundamental alteration of what humankind is, uh, you know, how are they going to treat us? We're going to be surplus and we're going to be maltreated. And you see that already happening in, in, in the warning. You're not going to have enough food to eat and we're going to kill all the chickens because they have a phantom, uh, yeah, phantom bird, bird flu. flu. We got we to gotta kill all of them. We got to kill all the turkeys and uh, we can't allow the beef to be eaten any longer because that's hard for, you know, hard on the planet, supposedly. Uh, all of these things are artificially created problems that don't really exist, but we're going to create those problems because we're transitioning humanity away from natural humankind to the transhumanist, uh, non-human species of the future. 
Yeah, exactly. You you cover that at the beginning of uh, of Endgame. In fact, uh, early on in the first like fifth of the book, um, you talk about you know totalitarian states, you know, basically triggering um, you know food shortages and famines and stuff. And uh, but I want I want to put my conspiracy theory hat back on, um, and uh, you know just just as I said at the at the opening, um, you know, in the sense of a cult that wants you more suggestible so it doesn't want you eating as much protein, you know, and it, it just kind of reminded me, uh, you know, with, with all these, you know, articles about, you know, you you know, most of the world eats insects and you can too is literally the, the title of another article um, that I'm just looking up. Um, and, you know, how these, you know, might affect cognition, you know, like in a cult, how they might make you, you know, more suggestible. And it just reminded me as a kid, I watched uh, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, and uh, in the in the in the scene, he puts a parasite in Chekhov's ear, and then uh, Khan is explaining, you know, why why this is so. And I just wanted to share that clip one moment. Allow me to introduce you to SETI Alpha Five's only remaining indigenous life form. What do you think? They killed twenty of my people. including my beloved wife. Oh, not all at once. And not instantly, to be sure. You see, their young enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. This has the effect of rendering the victim extremely susceptible to uh, suggestion. Later, as they grow, follows madness and death. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I just, I just love uh, Ricardo Montalban's, uh, you know, rich, luxurious Corinthian leather voice. Um, <laughs> allow me to introduce myself. That's how I learned to speak English, by the way. Um, listening to Ricardo Montalban. Um, the great moments in movie history. Yeah, exactly. But, but the, that kind of, you know, even though that's, you know, kind of ham-fisted Hollywood, you know, sci-fi, science fiction, um, there's actually, you know, something to that, you know, uh, people being more suggestible, you know, under the influence of a parasite, like we were talking about earlier with mice under yeah. toxoplasmosis or the stickleback fish, you know. Well, or, it's not just know, mice, though. It's humans. Yeah, correct. toxoplasmosis. Yeah, and, and we become extremely, it, it, it hijacks our cognition, you know, and, and people don't understand that. Um, like, I was reading a book on uh, the GI tract, and they call it the enteric nerve nervous system and they call it the second brain and, it, and they say yeah, that it has, your gut. yeah that it has about 90 percent of the same neurons as your brain so anything that yeah. you're taking into your your enteric nervous system you know through through consumption you know through eating something um that can hijack cognition and, and people as early back as the 19th century they were noticing uh you know people with um 
you know, like schizophrenia or, you know, people with these these insane, you know, mood swings and, and just, you know, hallucinations and stuff. And they, they changed their diet and it went away because we don't realize like how infected we are with parasites, with bacteria. Like I said, you know, 30 percent of the human biome is 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 foreign bacteria, you know, and how this affects yeah. cognition. And so you, you do wonder. I mean, you look at the, I would love to see, um, you know, social justice warriors and see the rate of, of them, you know, what rate of parasitism do they have you know when you look I, at i'm estimating it's extremely high yeah i think extremely I think, high i think so and this gets back to the the, the opening um you know uh, monologue of, of this presentation um where the the one guy was wondering he was he was wondering like why you know my cousin takes ivermectin and you know who's gay and suddenly he's not gay anymore after he takes ivermectin and that's just one anecdotal case and it's extremely controversial to even suggest that and he subsequently oh, let, me, let me bring something up about that though one of the very well-known symptoms of schistosomiasis is young children acting very sexual because as the schistosomiasis flatworm starts to really in, impinge on the body and infect almost all the tissues, it gets into the sexual organs. And it is an animal in itself, and it has hive mind, so they do not all move one at a time. They make up their mind somehow to go somewhere else. It may be thermally located, or it may have some other uh, hormonal reason for why they would migrate through the body. But I myself can vouch for the fact that they all ma they migrate and on moss. They decide, a large quantity of them, all of a sudden decides they're going to go somewhere else in your body, and you have nothing to say about it. And they, they have found that lascivious behavior in young children is a sign of infection with schistosomiasis. Well, yeah, like getting back to Richard Dawkins, you know, the, the pathogen wants, you know, the host as as a conveyance mechanism and it wants to jump to, to other people. So it manipulates that behavior. But where I was going with the with the gay thing was um, when you look at, you know, like the Chinese, the Chinese for thousands of years, they, they said that if you can see the, the, the whites underneath someone's eyes, they saw it as a sign of, of mental illness. Right. That they noticed that a lot of crazy people have these wide open, crazy eyes and people have done memes of like, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, you know, with these, with these wide open Charles Manson eyes. Right. And and so yeah. like when Eddie Murphy was doing stand up, he was, I think it was in, in his stand up uh, raw. Um, perhaps it was delirious. I don't know. But uh, he, he did a, a broad pastiche of like a gay character. And and what he did was interesting. He, he, he exaggeratedly opened his eyes so that you could see the whites under the eyes, just like the Chinese said. And the audience just went wild because they recognized that wide open. Oh, yeah, the gay look. yeah, the, the gay look. Exactly. Um, but but what's interesting is you can see that same look. It's called the triggered look in the social justice warriors, where all of a sudden when they when when you you hit a tripwire, all of a sudden their eyes just like do exactly that same thing. So I I, I would love to see like a study of like parasitism, and you know they've already done it with, with gay males. I would love to see you know how suggestible these people are under the influence of of parasites. You know, um, not to say that the the people did, and this is this is where it gets dark, and and you really go down a rabbit hole. Not to say that human beings are behind this, but perhaps some intelligence, you know, knows how to hack the human system, knows how to upload, you know, uh, software in, into the into the, the hardware of, of, a, of an animal, of a biological unit. 
to change its behavior, to make it more suggestible, to make it more, you know, uh, like like a cult member. You know, it, it, it really makes you wonder. Um, so anyway, Dennis, we've yeah, You also on. have to look at um, what Jane Ruby was saying. And it is really true that with the electron microscopy and the dark field microscopy, they really, unless they're doing spectroscopic analysis, they really have trouble understanding whether they're you know, one of the questions I have is whether or not when they're observing these things under the microscope, these things that look like worms that apparently are moving, I would like to know who's got a cell phone nearby. Because if there are electromagnetic, if there is electromagnetic radiation of any strength in the room, they should be mapping out the room for that before they do any microscopy, because they're going to see responses that may or may not be of an, on an animal basis. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up. I mean, in terms of what does the uh, design of the experiment look like and how was it carried out in terms of the environment in which it's carried out in? What is the laboratory environment? Uh, What is the equipment? I mean, I don't think we really have a good grasp of some of these things that are coming, so-called coming out from certain, uh, for lack of a better word, fringe research, because they're not using standard scientific method in reporting their results. And so we don't really have a good grasp of methodology. We don't have a good grasp of the statistical analysis and all of those right. things need to be included there. If we're going to have any kind of real science, scientific judgment as to what's being uh, reported. Well, what's, right. wor- what's worse without is that, that it's just fear porn. Well, yeah, but, but what's worse than that is it's not just fringe, you know, people abandoning the scientific method. It's the official pharmaceutical companies that, you know, instead of the 10 year, you know, study to, to oh, do yeah. a vaccine, it's two no months, point. you know? And so, so Absolutely. they're abandoning all the protocols. They're abandoning all the, all the strictures. Um, I wanted to get back to the, to the, the, the theme that I was, you know, controversially, you know, harping on um, about the, the gentleman, you know, talking about his cousin, and he started what it was in reference to was his 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 growing concern or skepticism regarding everybody freaking out about ivermectin um you know and uh, ivermectin is getting rid of the parasites and that's why it was invented and, and so i was reading a book um by Judy Samuelson called uh, Six New Business Rules. And it was it was published from right before, you know, within months uh, uh, prior to uh, to COVID happening. And she was singing the praises of uh, of ivermectin. She used it as an example of business ethics, um, you know, and, and, you know, the gentleman who invented it, you know, wins the Nobel Prize. And, uh, you know, and, and Judy Samuelson, who's at the Aspen Institute, she used to work for the Ford Foundation, um, very, very connected. Um, but yeah, using ivermectin as as an example um of of business ethics and i wanted to to share a clip from from her book um bear with me one moment the importance of understanding both the legal framework and what truly animates the business its purpose first became clear to me in a conversation with an executive about a decision he made a decade earlier in 1997 toward the end of my tenure at the ford foundation i spent an hour with roy vagelos who as ceo of the pharmaceutical company merck gave the go-ahead to produce a drug with no commercial value but whose properties had incalculable human benefit. The drug is Mectazon, also known by its generic name, Invermectin. Mectazon is still produced by Merck today as a money-losing but effective prevention and treatment for river blindness, a disease spread by infected black flies in breeding grounds near fast-moving rivers and streams in remote regions throughout sub-Saharan Africa. It is also found in discrete locations in Latin America and Yemen. A Harvard Business School case chronicles the decision that Vagelos faced, whether the company should engage in public health activities when the cost of success had no bounds, and the benefits to the company are, at best, intangible. River blindness is a devastating but curable condition. What is the right thing to do when you learn that your intellectual property could bring renewed life and hope to the victims 
but no revenues to support its production. When appeals by Vagelos to everyone from the UN to the White House failed to identify a public entity willing to take the patent off his hands and produce and administer the drug, he decided that Merck would forge ahead. The company's investment in 1988, backed by Vagelos's commitment to produce the drug free of cost for as long as needed, as much as needed, and wherever needed, is indeed a great case for the classroom. It's a leadership story, an ethical dilemma, but it's more than that. The Merck case became a compelling example of long-term thinking and a window into what makes a company tick. For Merck to succeed in this venture required complex partnerships that connected the science, drug production, and remote villages in infected areas. A network of public health agents and protocols was needed to turn drug delivery into sustained practice. The gambit is paying off on the ground, as Anko Serkias's river blindness is gradually being eradicated in areas where these practices have been effective. Decades after Vagelos made his move, Jim Young Kim, president of the World Bank Group, declared Merck's steadfast decision to produce and distribute the drug until the disease was eradicated, a game-changing intervention. So, yeah, I mean, before COVID happened, uh, ivermectin was universally praised. Um, you know, it was it, it, everybody was promoting it. Uh, they were saying what a wonderful thing it was, how ethical it was for Merck to, to provide it, you know, even though they weren't making any profits off of it. Um, and then all of a sudden, when COVID happened, the, the mass media turns against ivermectin and starts attacking it. And so people start start wondering, you know, what if it's not about COVID, you know, in particular, but in general, what if they... They, they don't want you to get rid of these parasites. What if they want you highly suggestible? <laughs> what if they want you certain behavioral patterns, you know, that are, that are, you know, being actuated by, you know, people being subjected to parasites and they're just, they're just freaking out over it. So, um, whoever well, wants Daniel, to there's one other thing about that. It's important to note that ivermectin was given the no two Nobel prizes and that it, it's considered one of the, the world's five essential medicines. So there is a huge amount of credibility for ivermectin, and it was really disgusting to listen to our press completely downgrading it and calling it horse paste. It's it's a you know to me that's a crime of negligence. Dennis, I 100% agree with that. I think it is a crime of negligence. In fact, it's even more so. I mean, that crime of negligence has led to incalculable harm and who knows how many needless deaths and how much suffering because of. The uh, the, that treatment of the way ivermectin was handled uh, in this country and elsewhere. Um, as to why that treatment was meted out to ivermectin, I think there is another uh, simpler, though no less diabolical uh, answer for that. And uh, that just goes back to the, the fact that uh, seemingly under law with regard to emergency use, use authorization for the vaccines that were so badly desired to be um, you know, foisted upon the the entire mass of people across the entire world, at least in the U.S., you couldn't have a viable acknowledged treatment protocol before that, or those emergency youth author authorizations would not be forthcoming. So, right, uh, it was the, Iver, yeah, it was a contravention. Exactly, ivermectin had to be taken off the table uh, as ineffective. Hydroxychloroquine had to go away. All other things had to go away in order to clear the ground for that release of those vaccines, uh, so-called, and uh, and that's exactly what they did. And and it's been part and parcel. It's been the other side of the coin, maybe to put it, of the vaccine rollout was demonize and discredit any treatment in order to make it possible, and to first of all have those uh, you know mRNA shots rolled out, and then also make it so that they're the only thing that is given to the public as uh, a counter to the fear of COVID. Well, that's the question. You know, that compounds, that compounds the pandemic scam. 
Yeah. Well, like I was like I was saying though, um, if you stand away, imagine COVID never happened, right? Imagine COVID never never took place, and this is not about you know uh, you know the the authorization, the emergency use authorization, because there's something wider going on, and the COVID and the emergency use authorization may have you know uh, revealed something else, you know uh, you know just accidentally. Um, and uh, it's something that, that may be beyond, you know, even our, our official governmental figures or intelligence agencies or anything like that. Something, um, you know, more, uh, let, let's say, less of human intelligence than something else that's operating in society. And um, and so I wanted to to, uh, to play this clip, and it's about a, a man being cured uh, by dog dewormer. Bear, bear with me one second. When you tell someone that a medicine for dogs cured your cancer, you better be ready for some skeptics. But Joe Tippin says it did save his life and others. And now even cancer researchers are open to the possibility it might be true. My neck, my liver, my pancreas, my bladder, in my bones, it was everywhere. Two years ago, Joe Tippin says he was told to go home, call hospice, and say his goodbyes. The doctors were unanimous. He was going to die of small cell lung cancer. Once that kind of cancer goes that far afield, the odds of survival are less than 1% and the median life expectancy is three months. Tippin says he went from 220 pounds to 110, but that was January of 2017. Today, Tippins is very much alive, and what he credits for his survival has doctors scratching their heads and the rest of us raising eyebrows. About half the people think I'm just crazy, and half the people want to know more and dig deeper. Tippins says he got a tip, not from a pharmacist, but a veterinarian. And in his desperation, he turned from people medicine to dog medicine, specifically fimbindazole, or what you give a dog when it has worms. Yeah, truth is stranger than fiction, you know. Just three months later, <laughs> Tippin says his cancer was gone. I'm usually skeptical, and I was, and maybe still am about uh, this one. But there's there's a lot of there's an interesting background to this. Cancer researchers like Stephen Prescott are skeptical, but they also are not dismissing this anti-parasitic's potential. He says Tippins is not the first person to potentially benefit, and maybe not the last. Scientists at many credible places have done work on this for years. But was it the dog dewormer, or was it something else? Tippins took the dog medicine with daily vitamin E supplements and CBD oil. He was also taking an experimental cancer-fighting drug. But Tippins says out of the 1,100 patients on that clinical trial, he was the only one cleared of cancer. Tippins says he was saved by the dog dewormer. So one one of the things that that was brought to my attention was Johns Hopkins of all places was talking about you know possible false cancer you know readings um, because uh, just to get back to that that thing that I said before thirty percent of our biome is bacteria is parasites and and all these other you know plasmids that are uploaded into us. And so Johns Hopkins um, did a, a study and the possibility that imagine if, if they extract, they, they do a biopsy of you and they're not looking at your DNA or your cells. They're looking at a parasite inside you and they think, oh, well, it came out of you, so it must be you. So there's cancer there. So therefore you have cancer. But what if you don't? What if it's the parasites that have cancer? And I wanted to play this clip. It's uh, from Johns Hopkins. Bear with me. A 41-year-old man in Colombia with HIV infection presented with fatigue, fever, cough, and weight loss. 
He had been non-adherent to therapy with a recent CD4 count of 28 cells per cubic millimeter and a viral load of 70,000 copies per milliliter. Stool examination revealed Hymenolepis nana, or dwarf tapeworm, eggs. The patient received three doses of albendazole, and antiretroviral medications were reinstated. CT imaging showed lung, liver, and adrenal nodules of up to 4.4 centimeters, as well as cervical, mediastinal, and abdominal lymphadenopathy. Both lymph node excisional and lung core needle biopsies showed nests of undifferentiated cells. The cells were characteristic of cancer, but they appeared to be of non-human origin. PCR targeting eukaryotes identified Hymenolepis nana DNA. Although they were unrecognizable as tapeworm tissue, tapeworm immunohistochemistry and probe hybridization labeled the cells in situ. Comparative deep sequencing identified H-nana structural genomic variants that were compatible with mutations described in cancer. The proliferative cells had overt features of malignancy. They invaded adjacent tissue, had a crowded, disordered growth pattern, and were monomorphic with a primordial stem cell-like morphology. The patient developed renal failure but declined hemodialysis, and he was placed on palliative care. In this case, the authors hypothesized that continued proliferation of tapeworms in the immunosuppressed host allowed somatic mutations to accumulate, ultimately leading to malignant transformation. Because HIV and H-nana infection are widespread, malignant transformation of H-nana may go unrecognized and may be misdiagnosed as human cancer. Preliminary data suggests that albendazole may be ineffective in treating clonal proliferations of tapeworm cells. Invasive H-nana cellular proliferations may present a new therapeutic challenge. Full details are available at NEJM.org. So, um, you know, the, the just sharing that out there, like how many people think that they have cancer and were told that they have cancer and they don't? <laughs> and it's actually a parasite that has the cancer, right? And uh, so when you take a dewormer and you're getting rid of the parasite, suddenly your cancer goes away because you never had cancer. It was the parasites that, that were going well, Let me uh, make a, a point about that, Daniel, because I've dealt with this. The parasite that I contracted in uh, Los Lutos, New Mexico, which has now got a schistosomiasis center, by the way, but at the time that I did, it was uh, a pond nearby that had developed a schistosomiasis parasite uh, trematode and several kids had been playing in the water because the frogs there had six and eight legs and they called the state biologist to come in because the parents were worried there was maybe a pesticide in that pond and the state biologist determined that indeed it was a parasite that infects humans and so there was a schistosomiasis cluster developing within the children there but unfortunately, my well went bad right at the same time, and I was a quarter of a mile from this pond, and I asked all the people in the area that had farm animals if they had trouble with parasites. And the, par the people all said, yes, we have trouble with our, our horses and pigs and llamas eating the greenery out of the pasture, and we do flood irrigation from the ditches, and the ditches all seem to have this parasite that is a cutaneous infection. So it's under the skin. And I still have tons and tons of scars where these parasites that infected me before I figured out what was going on and got onto the fact that I needed Praziquantel right away or die. I was diagnosed with uh, the worst possible anemia that you could have. Uh, I had practically uh, maybe two months to live.
if the progression had not stopped. And no doctor, all the doctors wanted to do was a stool sample. And this thing is not visible in the stool sample. It's only visible by blood test looking for eggs in blood. And so I was so anemic. I couldn't even, no matter how many breaths I took, I could not absorb any air and carry it to my tissues because I had no red blood cells that were mature enough to do it. And so one of the remnants, as I was getting better, I ended up doing a horse paste called Equimax. And that is, a, it's Praziquantel. It is the only known anti-schistosomiasis drug that I know of. And, and at the time I was doing the research a decade ago, it was the only one known in the world to be able to kill the schistosomiasis, including onchocerosis, which is the river blindness. And so what I've noticed over time, though, is where these creatures were coming to the surface of my skin, there were cancerous changes. And it was the interaction of sunlight with my body, casting off the parasites and making them want to leave my body. And as they came out of the muscle tissue into the surface of the skin, the uh, exposure to sun started causing cancerous changes to occur in my skin. Interesting. And, and so as a result, I, I, I came to believe that the interaction of the parasite, which uh, stays just under the surface of the skin, it's perfect. It's got tons of blood, tons of oxygen, and the protection of a layer of human skin to protect it from UVs and infrared. And then as it became paralyzed due to the praziquantel and my body was casting it off, I was noticing cancerous changes in my skin as the as the my body was uh, trying to discharge the the foreign tissue. Interesting, uh, Dennis. Do you have any uh, opinions on this uh, crazy rabbit hole? <laughs> well, you know, I don't think it's that crazy. I mean, in terms of the entire rabbit hole, um, in general, I think there's a misapprehension. I think we've talked about this in other episodes that. Uh, our scientific understanding of the world, broadly speaking, uh, is very, very sophisticated and almost entirely complete. And that is clearly not true. Uh, very sophisticated is true, but nearly complete, not at all. And uh, in particular, in biology, what we have uncovered so far only leads to more and more questions. Um, and in particular, you know, we can talk about uh, the impact of parasites on cognition chapter three conclusion i'll just conclude with this uh you know so it's not my words i'm going to take this from the journal frontiers in psychology this is research that was put together by uh, a team of researchers from israel france and japan uh, published in that particular journal in 2018 and here's what they say neuroparasitology is an emerging branch of branch of science that deals with parasites that can control the nervous system of the host. It offers the possibility of discovering how one species, the parasite, modifies a particular neural network and thus particular behaviors of another species, the host. Such parasite-host interactions, developed over millions of years of evolution, provide unique tools by which one can determine how neuromodulation up or down regulates specific behaviors. Uh, so, you know, right here, three expert uh, investigators reporting in a very respected scientific journal telling us that 
this is just the beginning. We're just learning about neuroparasitology and its implications right now. We're just scratching the surface. Uh, we haven't even begun to understand everything that we're going to learn. It's, an, it's almost a new frontier of science. And from the point of view of investigation for scientists, I think that's uh, both A, fascinating and, and B, exciting. Uh, from the point of view of the general population, it's a little bit nerve wracking, but also uh, whenever you, we can understand as a, as a culture, as a civilization, whenever we can get our arms around uh, increasing information about how the real world around us works, that has the potential to improve our lives because more understanding, fewer mysteries allows us to navigate, uh, navigate our world that much better. And uh, so it, in, in, in some, it's a good thing that we can investigate these mysteries, but it's important for people to realize we're not talking about something that is, in this case, uh, fringe science. No, not at all. We're talking about real science that's underway right now. People trying to understand exactly what's happening. Uh, and the, and the, the, the discipline is neuroparasitology. It's a, it's a real phenomenon and a real area of investigation. Well, I, I wanted to do my concluding remarks um, just in so far as uh, referring back to other episodes that we've done as well, um, where you see the technocrats uh, replicating things that they see in nature and they're trying to hack it themselves. For instance, uh, Schumann resonance in the world, you know, uh, using frequencies to manipulate biological organisms. And this this happens in nature. I mean, nature has a biological Wi-Fi. And so their, you know, tack is to, you know, create a synthetic Wi-Fi. And so, you know, I, so I wonder if in nature, uh, human beings, humanity has been guided um, in, into certain paths. Uh, you know, for, for instance, at the, at the beginning of the Iliad, Achilles talks about a plague that strikes the Greeks during the Trojan War, and he tries to root out the cause. And, you know, he goes to an oracle, and he's told that the gods are displeased that Agam Agamemnon kidnapped a girl, the daughter of a, uh, of a priest of Apollo, you know. And, um, you know, he was told to release her, and, and Agamemnon refused. So, you know, so Apollo deploys the plague. Um, and my question here is, what if at the cusp of every great human age, pathogens are released uh, to alter the genome of people, you know, like uh, Justinian's plague in 500 AD, which ushered in the Middle Ages or the Black Death in 1300 AD. Uh, what if, uh, you know, the, the so-called gods are doing something similar um, now to, you know, create like a great awakening? And the, the technocrats are trying to reverse it by creating their own counter plague to keep the population asleep. Um, you know, and, and, and so I, I know, just thinking about this, you know, um, What's interesting is that Achilles instinctively knew that it was the gods re releasing these plagues. You know, intelligence is manipulating humanity and guiding its destiny in, in esoteric ways, you know, like Enki in the in the Sumerian legends. Um, and so it, it made me wonder, you know, the transhumanists, um, you know, are, are they are they doing their own synthetic clumsy version of this possibly, you know? And, you know, are they experimenting? Are they going in this direction, you know, releasing plasmids? Nature does that, like I said, you know, how the technocrats are doing, you know, things that nature does or, ordinarily. Nature releases plasmids, which, you know, uh, upload DNA into people, um, you know, so and they're doing this now with CRISPR technology, you know, so they're doing their own clumsy version of what nature was already doing. And so, you know, I, I, I do wonder if, um, you know, what what's happening now, if, there, if, if, if we are, in fact, in the spiritual war, you know, and there's one side trying to awaken humanity and there's another side trying to keep humanity in a, in a highly suggestible state. Um, so with that, Ginny, I, I give you your give you the floor to do your concluding remarks. Well, I have to say that, um, you know, when you listen to Jane Ruby and you look at all the other stuff, Reiner Fulmich and the, the various people, uh, La Quinta Columna, 
throughout the world finding very strange structures that do not belong in a vaccine. These structures look like graphene oxide. They look like crystals that destroy neutrophils. There are tons and tons of examples of uh, vax recipient blood having thousands of crystals per cubic milliliter of blood. Thousands of these crystals that apparently destroy neutrophils and, and create a condition similar to AIDS or VADES as they call it destroying the immune system that, that you know that any any attempt we see on the part of the shall we say designers of these vaccines to inject parasites or even nano but uh, nanobot parasitic structures i.e morgellons and and fibers these things they cannot explain that look and sometimes that even look like routers inside uh, look like micro nano routers inside the vaccines. I think what we're seeing is number one, uh, a bit of chaos and that they're throwing the, the whole kitchen sink at everything they can put in these vaccines to try to elicit some sort of a reaction thereafter. But when you come right down to it, the elite in general are very good at being rich and not much else. And so they themselves are, are kind of the victims or are at the mercy of the BS they're being told by the scientists they've hired to design this crowd control vaccine. So we have, number one, we're looking at something that's designed to, to control behavior of the masses while they're being genocided. And, and I, I'm afraid that it doesn't go much beyond that. Okay, and with that, I'm going to end this broadcast on the worm pill conspiracy. And I wanted to thank our panelists, Ginny Silcox and Dennis Barrett. And as for me, I'm Daniel Attal, and I hope to see you next time on Under the Iceberg. <laughs>